Hello everyone, this is Karin Takar and welcome to the Zenergy Podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. In this season, through conversations with leaders who have been instrumental in developing the Indian renewable energy sector, we will highlight how India has managed to integrate 35 gigawatts of solar in just a span of 10 years. We will also explore what these leaders believe the key challenges to be as this sector further develops. In this conversation, we will be speaking with Gagan Sidhu, who heads the Center for Energy Finance at CEW, one of India's leading energy think tanks. In this conversation, we break down India's energy financing landscape, who the major players are, how the industry is structured, how much investment is being driven in currently, and what is required to track more international investment. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Mr. Gagin Sidhu, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I want to start out by just asking you to briefly introduce yourself so that we can get a brief understanding of like the context of your involvement in the Indian renewable energy sector. Could you please provide a brief introduction? Sure, sure, Karan, thank you. Uh, thanks again for having me for this uh, podcast. Um, I'm Gagan Sidhu and I'm director at the Center for Energy Finance at uh, CEW. Uh, CEW is a leading policy research uh, institution or think tank. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of the leading such institutions in Asia. And uh, the Center for Energy Finance, of which I'm a director, uh, the mandate for, for CEF is uh, pretty much to advance the energy transition. And uh, we do it in a couple of ways. One is by providing solutions which we feel will unlock capital flows that are required to hasten the energy transition. And the other way we do it is by providing uh, market participants and stakeholders uh, intelligence on events that are unfolding as the transition progresses. Um, so, you know, it, as, as, as you would have figured out, it's, it's about clean energy and it's about finance. And finance is what my background has been uh, from a professional perspective. Uh, I'm actually looking at finance from a third lens in this uh, phase of my career at CW. I've looked at finance previously as a investment banker and investment banking is fairly simple business. It's all about arranging capital uh, either your own or if you don't want to do it, arranging it from somebody else. Um, the second phase of my career was on the other side of the table, where I was a CFO for a renewable energy business. And that was all about uh, drawing in capital. Um, what I'm doing now is, of course, uh, working at a policy research institution where we are connecting the dots between the different stakeholders that participate in this market, be it the uh, private investors, be it the companies that actually operate in this space, the policy uh, makers, uh, as well as sources of capital. And we sort of sit somewhere in between 
and uh, try to make sure that uh, each of these stakeholders is interacting as best as they can and you know have the information required to uh, make those decisions that will drive the energy transition. Thank you. Thank you for expanding on that. And respect to the various stakeholders, can you help us understand like, how the renewable energy finance space is structured? Meaning, like, who are the different players in the space? What role does each player have in the development of projects? And when do they come into projects? Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, so Karan, I think uh, I think when we're talking about renewable energy, um, I'm guessing we're talking about, let's say, utility scale solar and wind for a minute. Let's just limit it to that because if we expand the definition, it can get quite uh, vast and, uh, and have too many moving parts. Um, but yeah, utility scale solar and wind is a good place to start. Um, we have about 93 gigawatts of uh, that capacity uh, installed and operating in India as of today. Um, of course, we've come a long way from uh, some of the first utility scale solar plants that uh, were built in India back in 2012, um, but we have a long way to go. You know, we have our target is 450 gigawatts by uh, 2030, and that requires a compound average, uh, compound annual growth rate of about 15 to 20 percent annually to go, to grow from 93 gigawatts to 450 gigawatts. Um, so, you know, in terms of financing, at a project level, of course, it is uh, equity and debt. Um, equity is usually a, a smaller portion, about, let's say, 25%, and the debt is uh, 75%. Of course, these are broad numbers. Um, there are many factors that go into sizing the amount of debt which lenders are willing to extend. Um, let's look at the big chunk first, which is the debt, which constitutes about two-thirds, uh, sorry, three-fourths of, of project cost. Um, and if I were to create a sort of uh, a visual matrix of where this is coming from, it comes from, uh, yeah, it comes either from India or overseas on the one hand, from a geographical perspective. And within each of these two geographies, it either comes from institutions, institutions of banks or non-bank financial companies, or it comes from the capital markets, which is basically the bond market. Um, the... Traditionally, these projects have been debt financed uh, at the time of construction by Indian banks and NPFCs. So therefore, most of the capital from the, on the debt side came from within India, uh, from institutions. The, the bond market for renewable energy projects, which is usually meant to refinance those initial project loans, the domestic bond market is uh, pretty much shut uh, for reasons of extreme credit consciousness. And I'll get to that a bit later. So you have the domestic institutions lending, but not the domestic bond market. Um, from the international side, the story is actually reverse. What you have is the overseas bond markets lending quite aggressively to uh, refinance these project loans, uh, but not the, domestic, not, the, not the international institutions that much. So just to give you a bit of context, uh, you know, it's the, the way I sort of say it quite often is that uh, the pandemic has put a much sharper focus on green. And, um, you know, I think uh, national ambitions are much higher and much loftier today than they were before, yeah. uh, you know, in, in pre-pandemic times. And that's actually showing up in terms of capital flows as well. So in the first five months of uh, 2021, more 
money has flowed from the international bond markets to Indian uh, renewable energy projects than in any previous calendar year uh, in the last, ever since the first green bond was issued by an Indian developer. So that's, I'm counting about three and a half billion dollars in the first five months uh, from overseas bond markets. So again, as I said, in summary, the money, you know, three-fourths of the money at a project level comes from uh, in the form of debt. Domestically, it comes from institutions. Internationally, it comes from the bond market. Super interesting. So it actually seems like it kind of works out where the Indian institutional investors are willing to lend, where, whereas the foreign institutional investors have some hesitancy but then the bond markets are very active internationally, whereas domestically they're a little less active. Um, but my question is why are, like, what do you find are the reasons for why international institutional investors are hesitant to um, lend to these projects? You know, I think uh, that's a great question. And having worked at a bank, which, which did look at project financing, uh, the power sector across geographies, including India. You know, I can tell you that there's a hesitancy amongst lend from uh, amongst institutional lenders, uh, purely from from the perspective of their apprehensions on the way uh, discom finances are today. Um, and that reluctance may not be uh, as high in the bond market, where bond market investors are, you know, willing to trade off some of that risk in return for a higher return. Um, but having said that, I do want to say that we had earlier this year, one of the first uh, institutional financings for uh, a renewable energy developer, this for Adani, and I think it was about a $1.3 billion loan, project loan, which was sanctioned by a clutch of international banks. But, but then again, I think this loan, if you look at the loan documentation in, in detail, it's not a long-term project finance, it seems to be some, uh, some, some conditionality regarding even that, that being taken out uh, soon into the project. You know? but, but clearly, you know, when you have such high ambitions, such as 450 gigawatt, uh, you need to have all four boxes kind of work. You know? you, so the, the four boxes would mean, it would mean the domestic bond market uh, opening up and, and what, doing whatever it takes to actually open that up, as well as getting international lenders to uh, to invest. Because, you know, the, the Indian domestic banking system just doesn't have the headroom uh, to, to fund this. To give you a, a, a to, to quantify the challenge, um, you know, I count, I estimate that uh, building this 450 gigawatt of um, RE capacity is going to require about $200 billion odd just for the generation. I'm not talking about uh, transmission, I'm not talking storage. That's $200 billion required. And guess what? The aggregate exposure of the Indian banking system and NDFCs is to the entire power sector. It's about $160 billion, you know? So clearly that one box doesn't have the headroom to fund $200 billion. So each of the four boxes has to fire up. Super interesting. Thank you for providing those numbers. And yeah, I was reading about that Adani inflow from the international banks and saw that it was like a compilation of 12 international banks that came yeah. together to provide that 1.5 billion 
dollar loan. And I also was reading that for like oftentimes what happens is um, for when clean energy companies like build a large utility scale solar wind farm, um, they usually sell it off after a few years of it being operational in order to give them the financial leeway to build or bid for newer projects. So I'm just trying to understand in terms of like the timeline of when these financiers come into projects. So for example, like these international institutional investors or even domestic, do they come in initially help raise the development capital and then say like the projects bid out or built out in a few years, like an Adani or a Renew, will they then usually approach, like who would they approach to sell the project? Uh, sure. So I think it's a, this is a great way to move the sort of discussion to the equity side because it's the equity sponsor or the developer who is actually making those decisions to sell or to recycle capital, et cetera. You know? It's his decision to make at the end of the day, not the lenders, although the lender gets paid back first but the decision-making on the future of the project is largely, you know, it's, it's in terms of who's going to own it and all is going to be made by the equity sponsor. And I think, I think one of the, the key, one of the interesting or the, one of the obvious ways to look at it is that uh, let's look at the word developer you know, and see what that means. Typically to me, a developer is somebody who, you know, develops or builds new projects. Um, and, and the way renewables is, I think it, it offers a potential to differentiate between developer and owner, um, you know, uh, because a developer need not be the long-term owner of that project uh, forever. And that's slightly uh, different uh, for, let's say, more complicated things like thermal, coal-fired plants, et cetera, because even setting aside the, uh, the green aspects uh, for a minute and increasing investor hesitancy to back them, uh, the, the reality is they're much more complicated to run. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, for solar and wind plants at the cost of oversimplification, you just need to get up in the morning and wait for the sun to shine or the wind to blow. That's about it. And you don't even need to do your own O&M. You know, it's all, it's all third party if you want to. So what that means is it literally is a, a set of cash flows that don't require too much complexity in terms of managing it. The only thing you need to figure out is will you get paid in time? So that makes these set of cash flows very uh, recognizable to financial institutions. Um, and after all, remember financial institutions, uh, private pools of capital, hedge funds, private equity funds, um, you know, they're always hungry looking for new avenues or new instruments that they can then syndicate out to their investors. So think of, uh, Think of a high net worth individual, think of a, of a private pool of capital sitting in the US or Asia or, or, or Europe, which wants to allocate a small percentage of its uh, capital to fixed income type uh, cash flows. And, you know, lo and behold, that's what uh, renewables is. So, you know, it's the developers that develop. Uh, I'm not sure that I buy the argument that developers are great, necessarily great uh, buyers of uh, of, of projects because I think investors have given them money to build new projects rather than to buy existing projects. Um, I'm sure there are exceptions to that case, uh, but more often than not, I think developers develop 
that's what their investors are giving the money for. And 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 I think um, you know one of the ways they can then uh, develop more projects is to offload these operational projects to financial institutions. And I think even if you don't offload them, I think there's value to be uh, had in splitting up your under development cash flow profile and uh, operational cash flow profile. You know? That makes a, a lot of sense. So generally, do the developers approach like private equity funds? Is it mostly like do the purchasers of projects most, mostly use um, equity to purchase the projects? Or again, do they like use their own, tap into their own debt equity network to then buy the yeah. project and that process restarts? Is that generally how it happens? Well, yeah. So typically when you look at a loan documentation, um, you know, in case there is a sale of a, of a, of a, of a project, the loan documentation will require, or will, will give the lender the option to exit at that point, or, you know, a lender will require, will be, this equity sponsor will require lender approval to sort of, uh, to, to shift ownership of the project. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it can be multi, it can be a variety of uh, scenarios, you know what I mean? You could have, you could have the existing lender stay in place. You could have that lender taken out by a new lender. You could have uh, capital coming in very interesting ways, you know, to, to fund that project. Well, and actually, it's not to fund the project, it's to take out the existing lender. I see, I see. Yeah. And my last question on this specific topic involves like a breakdown of the institutional investors. I feel like I'm still not super clear in terms of who those players are, um, if that makes sense. Sure, sure, yeah. So if I, if I look at the institutional investors, uh, uh, on the, uh, and let's split it up between debt and equity. For a minute, you know. So, so some of the big debt, some of the big sources of debt for renewable energy projects, some of the big Indian institutional sources are the likes of uh, LNT Finance, you know, uh, PFC, REC, Ireda, State Bank of India, what have you. Yes Bank used to be a big investor, a big lender. Um, so those are the those are the banks in NBFCs. Remember, LNT Finance and REC, PFC are not. Uh, banks, the non-bank finance companies, um, as well as a radar. Um, and then on the equity side, that's a very interesting question. So the, on the equity side, I think if you were to look at the, uh, the, the equity side of any Indian developer, um, I think you'd find that, uh, actually, if you look at the liability side of the holding company, I think you'd find that the equity or pure equity itself is a very thin sliver. You know, pure equity is, a, and I would almost, I think the word used is often is thinly capitalized. Um, so the bulk of the liability side is also some form of uh, fixed income or hybrid instruments, you know. So from that perspective, if you were to look at a uh, renewable energy holding company, uh, it's nothing but a capital pass-through vehicle. So in a sense, it's also a lot like a bank and a non-bank or a non-bank finance company, where the pure equity on the liability side is very tiny, and uh, a lot of the other uh, a lot of the other bits of the liability side are made up of uh, fixed income type of uh, 
of, of capital. So therefore, the pure equity makes a return if you borrow that capital at the holding company level at X percent and uh, invest it as equity in your project at X plus percent. And the spread is what is the return that goes to the pure equity guy, which is, which is the same way banks and non-bank finance companies operate. Do you have any specific like names for who the major holding companies are? I know. So, so yeah, I mean, each 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 of the developers would have a, a, a would have a holding company at the apex of their structures, and um, okay. yeah. So you you could you know one could take a look at the balance sheets of those companies and, and, and get a pretty clear uh, perspective. Interesting. Yeah, I saw Adani acquired SB Energy for yeah. $2.5 billion. That must have been a major move. Yeah, that was, I think, as I said, the exception to the general rule by developers, I think, um, have mm-hmm. given capital to develop uh, projects. Super interesting. And I feel like I have such a more solid understanding of how um, the financing side is structured. And I was reading a CEW analysis from a few years back, and essentially it was expressing how up to that point, the uh, majority of the decrease in solar tariff costs was stemming from the decreasing cost of hardware, like from panels and um, et cetera. However, like moving forward, that the cost of financing will be a major driver in terms of reducing solar tariff costs moving forward. And I think just the breakdown in that specific year from January, 2016, I couldn't find anything more recent, not only at CEW, but elsewhere. Maybe um, there are some reports out there, but from January, 2016 to May, 2017 was the year that was analyzed and hardware accounted for 73% of the solar tariff reduction, whereas the cost of financing accounted for 27% for the tariff decline. So it does show that the cost of financing was declining during that period. Um, But I'm curious, like now, are you seeing that um, this argument holds where like the cost of financing is starting to become a major driver in terms of the solar tariff cost? It's a good question. I think also to, to add to what you said, you know, the cost of financing also probably felt because uh, the conditions were uh, uh, viewed to be, you know, attractive for that capital to invest in India. Because the cost of financing is not going to just uh, fall um, for no reason. I think it's it's also because the government or the policymakers, you know, came up with some really uh, very interesting things that really drove the explosion of the solar market. In India, that you know, some of them were, of course, getting um, quasi-sovereign entities like NTPC and SECI to execute the PPAs uh, instead of having the PPAs directly with discounts, which of course also happened in parallel. But that, in itself, you know, drove or that 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 uh, assuaged uh, the risk perception in uh, in the eyes of many uh, investors. And you know, when risk goes down, so does the cost of, of the capital associated with that risk go down. Um, so that's what happened. I mean, that plus things like uh, 
mitigating uh, land aggregation risk by arranging for solar parks, which enable investors and developers to pretty much plug and play uh, projects. Um, so that that was, I think, one of the things, or a couple of things, a couple of the factors that uh, drove the reduction in the cost of capital. You know, cost of capital or risk perception or newer entrants coming in is always going to uh, be a factor that's going to drive down uh, tariffs. Uh, how much? It's difficult to say, but to give you an idea, so, you know, some of the lowest tariffs that have been achieved in the last in the last six seven months have been sub two rupee level tariffs. Um, and if you see who the people, the entities are who are bidding for those, you know, entities like NTPC Power. So you have the National Thermal Power Corporation of India is now bidding for solar projects. And that's a whole new ballgame because remember, NTPC raises money in the bond market in India. So the bond market is open for the likes of NTPC because it's a quasi-sovereign and it raises it very cheaply. And if, you know, if that is uh, capital that's going to compete with other people, then I can tell you that that's a big advantage that NTPC has over a lot of other players. So yeah, it's a, that's, you know, capital is going to drive down tariffs um, and it's going to be driven down through not just a, a secular reduction in risk perception, but also because of newer entrants who have access to capital at attractive rates entering the market. And that's that brings me back to so, sort of to close the loop on this. Remember, this is a business with zero barriers to entry, uh, pretty much, when it, you know, when you compare it to other sources of energy. And that's why um, I almost think that, and I'll, I'll always ask myself, is this a business with a first mover advantage or is this a business with a late mover advantage, you know? Uh, I think the answer is a bit of both. Very interesting. And I guess wrapping up here, thank you so much for your time and all of these amazing insights. Like, What do you believe will be the major drivers to enable like, the cost of financing to slowly decrease over time? And I guess another way to reframe that question is, what do you think will be required to open up the Indian bond market further and to bring in more in international institutional investors beyond maybe the discoms improving financially? Are there any like other major challenges that you perceive? Because I know you already mentioned that main constraint. Yeah, no, I think the, see, uh, the accessing the bond market is, 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 is really important. And I think it's also important because it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. India is kind of unique in that it's a fairly large, sophisticated uh, economy. Um, but it's one of those rare cases where the bond market is actually smaller in size than the equity markets. In most other countries, it's the reverse. Bond markets are much bigger than the equity markets. And that has got to do with the fact that you know there's a limited retail investor participation in the bond market, as well as I think there's a there's a there's a paucity of supply of the kind of credits that the bond market likes, you know, and because the majority of the bond market participants are kind of I would say institutional and somewhat constrained in not having flexibility to invest in bonds below a certain rating. So therefore, you know, if you don't have enough of those rated bonds in the market, 
then it's a circular sort of chicken and egg situation. Um, I think to open up the, the uh, Indian bond market, um, we actually worked on a solution last year at CW. It's a, uh, we call it a subsidized credit enhancement. So what we're talking about is taking the uh, current loans, which may be rated at, you know, whatever rating, and giving them, I would say, uh, in simple terms, an insurance, writing a small insurance policy so that they achieve the kind of rating which would allow them entry into the bond market. And what we figured was that the amount of capital required, and this is from last year, so at that time, the solar capacity was about 33 gigawatts. We said, you know, if, if you want to take 33 gigawatts to uh, 66 gigawatts, um, we estimated that the amount of capital required to open up the bond market, to, to, to actually write that insurance policy was in over five years was something like six, $700 million, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually not a huge amount um, over five years, you know? So that in itself would actually open up the Indian bond market to, uh, to developers. That would open up capital of a quantum to allow the doubling of capacity. Wow. That's super interesting. That's honestly not that much capital, it would seem to. It's not. If you think about it, if for over five years, you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, 150 million odd a year. Yeah. And considering and then, Adami just bought SB for 3.5 billion. Yeah. One company. Yeah. Five gigawatts yeah, in capacity. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's it's not much. And I think it's also something that, is required, not just from a solar or, or renewables perspective also. I think, you know, it, it also takes the box in terms of getting the bond market to expand in size and also opening it up because you, you just don't have the amount of capital that you need for 450 gigawatts lying with the banks. I see. And then the, the second part of that question, I think I'd like to kind of hone it more specifically to focus on maybe how the U.S., and India can partner from the financing side. Do you see any ways that the U.S. can help maybe facilitate India to achieve the 450 gigawatts? And what do you foresee as the benefits to the U.S. for helping facilitate that process? Sure, sure. So, you know, some of that money from the bond market, international bond markets is already coming from the U.S. Um, so just to give you a, a, a rough a breakdown of share, uh, I would say about half of the bond market investors or half of the money that uh, is raised via these bond market uh, issuances actually comes from within Asia. And uh, the balance, 50% is split half and half roughly between uh, the US and, and Europe. So a quarter of the money is already coming in if you, if you want to look at it from that perspective. you know. Uh, from the international bond markets to Indian RE. Um, I think going forward, I think we need to start also looking at not just funding perhaps the uh, 450 gigawatt of uh, generating capacity, also start thinking about what it's gonna take to have uh, the storage and transmission and beyond functioning you know, in harmony 
because I think you can't have 450 gigawatt without transmission, without storage, and, and also, uh, I guess, a pretty decent penetration in terms of electric vehicles, which, by the way, in India is less than 1% as of uh, the financial year ending March 31st. It's 0.88% to be precise. Um, so, so I think from the U.S.-India perspective or the U.S.-India corridor perspective, as you said at the outset, clean energy, I think, is a great platform to bring the two countries together. I think capital, um, for some of the more interesting things which hasn't received sufficient capital, is important. Perhaps storage, perhaps transmission, and perhaps even you know, capital for technologies that are going to be required to integrate the two. Um, uh, and, and moving even further and, and, and you know, blurring the, the sort of the, the lines between capital and technology, let's just talk about technology itself, you know, which will be required uh, to make this transition happen. So I think, you know, the, the, the capital for 450 gigawatt, I think you may not get there exactly, but it's going to, you know, it, 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 it will get close to it from a capital perspective, but it's the, all the other stuff which you know, is not making it to the conversations yet enough anyway, for which I think uh, capital from the U.S. would be extremely welcome. And I think that with technology, and I think for the U.S., it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge market that then opens up. Getting its technology to be applied in a country of a billion plus people. I hope you enjoyed that episode and do check out the show notes for more information on my guest. See you next time.